seated. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open to the epistle of 1 John, where we'll be continuing our, our study through this book, continuing our study of what John teaches us so that we may have assurance of our salvation, that we may know we have eternal life. This morning, we'll be looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I ask that you turn there and follow along as I read. I'll read verse 18 to show a little bit of the connection between the previous passage and what we'll be looking at this morning. 1 John chapter 3. Beginning in verse 18, this is God's word. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Thus far, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please pray with me briefly. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the word which you have given to us. We thank you, our Father, that you have blessed us with the scriptures by which we know what duty you require of us and what we are to believe about you. We pray now that as we come to your word, you would bless us and that you would teach us that you would show us what you would have us to know from here about a conscience and confidence in you and in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do this for our good, for your glory, that we might be conformed more to the image of our Lord Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if any of you this morning have ever had a guilty conscience. If I was a betting man, I would place money on the answer being yes. Yes, I think we've all had a guilty conscience over big things and small things. You might have a guilty conscience because you committed something of of a large sin. You might have a guilty conscience when you walk through the kitchen and you see a plate of cookies and you just pick one up and eat it. And later are told, oh, that was going to be a a plate of cookies taken to somebody in the church or a friend. All of a sudden you have a guilty conscience. What do you do when you have a guilty conscience? How do you deal with it? Do you just wait around and hope that whatever guilt you're feeling disappears? Or do you force your conscience to be quiet and stop afflicting you? Or do you deal with it? properly, as we all ought to, and confess whatever the wrongdoing was and seek forgiveness from a person that you sinned against or against the Lord whom we've sinned against. 
What do you do with a guilty conscience? Well, in our text this morning, that's more or less what John is dealing with. Is what do we do with a guilty conscience? How do we deal with it? If you've been reading through First John, or perhaps if you just have been following along with the sermon series, you know that in the last chapter, in chapter 3, John's been dealing with uh, evidences of our standing in the family of God, whether we have God as our father and Christ as our savior and elder brother. And the evidences of this are a life of, of righteous living before God, imperfect, certainly, but the pattern is there. We, we seek to do things which are pleasing to God and, and we see evidences of that in our life. And the other evidence which John presents to us is love for the brethren. Do we, do we love one another? Do we care for one another? Are we seeking the good of one another? And now as we come to verse 19, John is anticipating the question which kind of pops into our heads when we read about these evidences. Wait a minute, John, hold up. Yeah, I see these evidences in my life generally, but but I'm not living a perfect life. I, I sin. What do I, what do I do with that? Well, yes, I, I love the brethren. I, I do want to love them more, but sometimes I, I'm not loving. Sometimes I, I get irritated at my brother or sister in Christ. What do I do with that? John is anticipating our reaction being, well, yes, I think I see evidences, but but I want to see more evidences and and I see negative examples in my life. How do I deal with this? What does this mean about me? And so John here, once again, seeks to direct the gaze of the Christian back to that place that we need to look every time we sin, namely Christ himself. We must look back to Christ. And John does this uh, in a very interesting way by first speaking about our consciences. He calls it the heart. In verses 19 through 20, he speaks of conscience. And then in verses 21 and 22, he speaks of a confidence that we ought to have. And then in verses 23 and 24, he speaks of some commandments which God has given to us to kind of take us through this, this very good Uh, and very necessary question that we should be asking. What do I do with a guilty conscience? John says, essentially, if you have a guilty conscience, take it to the Lord Jesus Christ. With that in mind, I invite you to look back with me at the scripture. So we see what John has to say here about these three things, conscience, confidence, and commandments. Look with me at verse 19. Where John begins this little discourse on the conscience. John writes here, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Now, this by this is John's uh, way of connecting what he's now writing with what he has just finished writing in, in the previous verse. And that's why I read verse 18. He's connecting this section to the fact that we're not supposed to just love in word and talk. We're not just supposed to say that we love one another, but we're supposed to demonstrate that in deed and in truth. And he says that in so doing, we shall know that we are of the truth. John reminds us once again, as he has in the previous passage that we looked at, that love for the brethren, 
is a very strong evidence of our standing before God. And why is that? Well, because love for the brethren is not something which we muster up in our own strength. It's very hard for us to, well, indeed, it's impossible for us to conjure up love for others. In our, in our sinfulness, in, in our natural state, we're solely focused on ourselves. And so if we have love for one another, that is an amazing evidence that the Holy Spirit has done a great work in our hearts. He is the one who has placed that love for one another in our hearts. He's the one who grows that love for one another. And so John reminds us that this is a fantastic evidence. And he says, by this, we know that we are of the truth and we reassure our heart before him. This word reassure uh, could also be rendered persuade. We can persuade our heart. When our heart says, well, I think I see some evidence, but I'm, I'm not entirely certain of how I stand before God. John says, if you look, if you look at the work which the Holy Spirit is doing, this reminds you of the great grace of God which he pours out. This directs your gaze back to the Lord Jesus Christ. This persuades you, it shows you that your status before God is a good status. It's good because of the grace of God in Christ and the work of the Spirit in our life. It's nothing of our own doing, but it's all of grace. And John reminds us of that. He tells us that we know we're of the truth, that we're members of the people of God. We're people who follow Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And that should reassure our hearts and and persuade us. But... But John knows that we're sinners because he himself is a sinner and he knows that we all fall short. And so he reminds us then in verse 20 that uh, though this is evidence, we oftentimes uh, feel our hearts condemn us. Uh, We see warnings of our conscience. The very first half of verse 20, he says, whenever our hearts condemn us, Now, what does it mean that your heart condemns you? The word heart here, John is using as a synonym for conscience. Uh, Throughout this whole entire text, when he speaks of the heart, he's speaking of our consciences. What does it mean when our conscience condemns us? Well, it simply means that we're being reminded of guilt. And sometimes we might think that this is a bad thing because we don't like to feel guilty, but in reality, this is a very good thing. It's a good thing that our conscience uh, gets uh, pricked, that it convicts us, tells us that something is wrong. It's like if you fall and scrape your knee, children, you, you feel pain, don't you? Well, that's because something's wrong. And the conscience is very much the same way. It tells us that there's, there's something wrong. Why might our conscience condemn us? Well, the one reason, probably the, the preeminent reason, the biggest reason is a good reason. It's because we've sinned and our conscience is telling us, you must return to Christ. Turn back to Christ in repentance and faith. 
You've just broken God's law. Confess that to God. Take it back to him. Ask for forgiveness. And this is actually a very good thing. It's, it's a reminder to us to return to Christ. In fact, if our conscience doesn't tell us to do this, then there's something of a problem, isn't there? If the conscience does not afflict you when you've sinned, it's been suppressed and quieted. And what the New Testament uh, perhaps means when it says your conscience has been seared. Hopefully none of our consciences have been seared. If we're in Christ, I don't think that that should ever happen, but we must not suppress our conscience. We should listen to it and turn to Christ in repentance. Having a conscience that does not convict you would be like having a burglar alarm in your home that doesn't work. That's not a good thing. A burglar alarm that doesn't make a noise or send a signal to the local uh, police force is of no use to anyone. The same thing is true of the conscience. A conscience that does not convict us when we sin is a defective conscience. We should work on, on developing conscience. Your conscience might condemn you, however, if it's very tender. And this would happen when you have been alerted to sin in your life and you have taken it to the Lord and you've confessed it, but your conscience still says, maybe you're still guilty. And in this instance, we should remind our conscience of the grace of God in Christ. We should say, the Lord says that if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me. He has forgiven me. It's not quieting the conscience, but it's reminding it of the grace of God in Christ. And I think this is uh, an important thing for us to think about and remember when our conscience is afflicting us. Is it afflicting you because you sinned and you need to repent? Or is it afflicting you because it's, it's very tender? You've already repented, but you still feel some guilt. Both should cause us to flee to Christ. We must be able to distinguish between those things. And I think that's kind of John's thought process here. Because in the second half of verse 20, he talks about God being the Lord of the conscience. Essentially, we read here in the second half of verse 20 that God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So this has kind of a double meaning. First, God is the judge of all the earth. And so, if you have a guilty conscience because you have sinned and you're unrepentant, well, then God, uh, being greater than our heart, should remind us that he knows our hearts and he knows our impenitence, and that should be a warning to us. But, on the other hand, God being greater than our heart and knowing everything should remind us that if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're trusting him, but still maybe doubting salvation because of sin, which, which comes up in our life, God being greater than our heart reminds us that God knows who belong to him. That God knows his children and he loves his children and he forgives his children. God being greater than our heart Uh, should remind us that if we are his child, we've been given the righteousness of Christ so that we may have 
confidence in Christ to stand before the Lord. This cuts two ways. But both of these meanings of God being greater than our heart and knowing everything say to us, look to Christ. Go to Christ. Trust in Christ and depend upon him and him alone for salvation. When your conscience says guilty, go to Christ. Ask for forgiveness and remind your conscience, yes, I've sinned, but my great Savior has forgiven me and cleansed me of all unrighteousness. And when we do that, we may have confidence in Christ, which is the next place that John goes in our text. If we look at verses 21 and 22, we read there, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask from him, we receive because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So John here says that a clean conscience leads to confidence before God. If your heart does not condemn you, if your heart uh, is in a place where you know that your sins have been dealt with on the cross, you may have confidence, not in yourself, but in Christ. This non-condemnatory conscience only comes from faith because it's only in Christ that our sins are actually really dealt with. So we, when we have this, with this confidence... We're again reminded to look to Christ and trust in him because he forgives us of our sins and, and gives us peace of conscience. This clean conscience leads to confidence. This word confidence is a good translation, but uh, more literally, it's, it's fairly rarely used in the New Testament. It speaks of boldness of speech, of of frankness, of freedom to speak. What John is saying here is that when you know that your sins have been dealt with on the cross, when you're looking to Christ and you're able to say, I have been forgiven by my Savior, you don't shrink back from God. You can go boldly to the throne of grace for help in time of need. You can, you can speak to your heavenly Father full of confidence, frankness. You can go to him and say, Father in heaven, I know that you hear me because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, here are my prayers and requests. You take them before him. And I think this is important for us to understand because John is tying this confidence that we have before God, because of our clean conscience, to prayer in verse 22. He says there that whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We, we can pray confidently and properly because we keep God's commandments. Now, this is one of those tricky verses in the Bible. We, we look at this and we say, oh, uh, whatever we ask, we receive from him. So if, if 
I say, dear Lord, I would very much like a Lamborghini in my driveway tomorrow morning, do we say, it's going to happen? That's not what John means here. That's not what John means. The whatever that John talks about here is whatever is according to God's will. Right? It's when Christ says that whatever you ask in my name, you will receive. Christ speaks of his name. It means uh, his nature, who he is, what he wills and, and desires. So to pray according to Christ's name is to make sure that our prayers and requests are those things which we are told to pray for. If you would like for your prayers to always be answered yes, pray those things that we are specifically told to pray for, that God's name would be hallowed, that he would do his will, that he would be glorified. God will hallow his name. He, he will show his name to be holy and he will always do his holy will. And God will get glory for himself. We can pray prayers, which God always answers yes to. And we should pray those prayers. That's very important. But what John is saying here is pray according to God's will. Don't ask for things uh, for yourself, for your own glory, for your own benefit, but pray those things that are according to God's will and he grants those prayers. And all of God's answers to prayers demonstrate uh, for Christians evidence of our being children of God. I wonder if you've ever considered this. If God answers yes to a prayer which you pray, this is an evidence of God's loving grace towards you. And if God says no to a prayer that you pray, this is evidence of God's loving grace towards you. Sometimes we don't think about that very much. But if it is not according to God's will, he will say no, and we know that his will is perfect and good. So when he tells you no, it's because it's perfect and good, and it would not be good for you to have those things which you've prayed for. And so we see that all of God's answers, whether yes or no, are evidences of his loving kindness towards us, his great grace towards those who are his children. His yeses for our good and his glory, his noes for our good and his glory. And so whatever we ask, we receive from him when we pray according to his will. And then John makes this other slightly tricky statement. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now again, is John saying that when we obey God, he's obligated to give us what we ask for. No. We know that from the testimony of the rest of Scripture. We know that from what God says. But John's point here is that when we're keeping God's commandments, when we're doing what pleases him, when we're seeking to follow the will of God, we're far more inclined to pray the things that are in accordance with his will. We want God's will to be done because we love him and, and we desire for uh, his goodness and his grace and his glory to be evidenced to the whole world around us. We see similar ideas in James chapter 5 when we read that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Or in Psalm 37 when we read that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. 
If your delight is the Lord, what is the desire of your heart? Is it not the Lord himself and what he wills to be done? And if we are praying those uh, effectual fervent prayers in righteousness, are we not seeking for God's will to be done? For his glory to be shown to all the earth? This is what John is speaking of here. If our heart does not condemn us, if we know that we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're loving God and seeking to walk according to his ways, we desire for his will to be done, not for our own will to be done. And we want that will to be done. And so we ask for that will to be done. And we trust that the Lord will do all his holy will because we know that he is good and gracious and great and does all things well. That is the confidence that we have before God, confidence that he will accomplish all which he sets out to accomplish. He'll never be thwarted. When we ask for his will to be done, it will be done. And then John moves from this this confidence which we have because we keep his commandment into telling us what specific commandments he has in mind. He tells us this in verses 23 and 24. Two specific and beautiful commandments, which I think sometimes we might not really consider commandments. But John writes here, verse 23 and 24, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So John clarifies Uh, what these commandments are, why God listens to our prayers, and why God gives us answers to our prayers, whether those be yes or no. It's because we who trust in Christ are obeying the call of the gospel, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first command which John writes here is that we are to believe in the name of of God's Son, Jesus Christ. We're to believe in Christ. Our prayers are heard and answered by our Heavenly Father because we are adopted children through faith in Christ. When we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a work of the Holy Spirit who is called the Spirit of Adoption in Romans chapter 8. And this Holy Spirit brings us into the family of God. He gives us the righteousness of Christ, which we do not deserve, imputing it to us, putting it in our account, as it were, and and bringing us into God's family. Is this a command which we obey in our own power? No. This, too, is the great grace and work of God in us. Belief in Christ is a gift of God. And we are shown to be God's chosen people and his adopted children when the Spirit gives us grace and we flee to Christ 
for salvation. What I think is important to note here, that John doesn't tell us just to believe in anyone called Jesus or called the Christ. We have to believe in the true Christ. There is only one Savior of men. John here says that he is God's Son, Jesus Christ. He reminds us that our Savior is the second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate. We don't trust in some mere man for our salvation. We're not depending upon another fallible human being. We're depending upon the second person of the Trinity who took on human flesh and is man 100%, but is perfect because he is the God-man. That is the son of God. and He's God incarnate, not just a good man and a wise teacher, but God himself. And this is Jesus, the one who came to save his people from their sin. Not some other God. No, the living and true son of God, Jesus. And this son of God, Jesus, is the Lord's anointed one. The Christ of God, the one whom God promised there in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 that he would send someone to crush the serpent's head. And the one who's prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, the one in Psalm chapter 2, who is the Lord's anointed, who will reign as king on Zion's holy hill. This is the one in whom we must believe because there's no other savior out there who can give us the righteousness which we must have to stand before God. And praise be to God, we have this Savior. And this Savior calls to you. It says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord Jesus Christ loves, loves to save people. He loves to save sinners and he calls to sinners throughout this entire world, come to me. And the spirit draws all of his people to him and gives them his righteousness so that they might have faith in Christ and they might have a confident standing before God. So they might have a cleansed conscience. This is the great work of God in Christ it's wonderful and glorious and, and beautiful. It is God's good and gracious gift. And the second thing that John reminds us of that we're called to do as Christian people is to love the brethren. We're to love those people whom Christ loved. We're to imitate our Savior, having love for one another. It's one of those questions which I think we should constantly ask ourselves, can a person love God and not love the things which God loves? Can a person love Christ and not love those whom Christ loves? We should love the brethren. We're called to love the brethren. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must love the brethren. We should be asking the Lord to grant us love. Uh, in greater measure, more and more, so that we might love what God loves.
love what Christ loves and, and obey this command of God. Those are the commands and John concludes in verse 24 here. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. John once again reminds us, as he has throughout this entire epistle, that there are evidences of our standing before God. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him, John says, it is not that the commandments, the keeping of the commandments, excuse me, are what have us abiding in God, but they are evidences of that. They are evidences that God abides in us by his Holy Spirit and he's working in us. Uh, I thought of, well, it's an imperfect illustration, but I think one that is simple enough to help remind us of this great truth. If you go to a grocery store and you pull a jar of jelly off of the shelf and you read grape jelly there on the label, is what's inside the jar grape jelly because of the label? No. No, it was not filled with some amorphous substance that as soon as a label was slapped on there, became grape jelly. But the label tells you what's on the inside. Well, the same is true of our lives uh, of righteousness. What's inside is evidenced by our lives. It's like a label that shows us and others around us the spirit lives in me and is working in me. It's not the works which make us children of God. It's not the works which make us Christians. But the fact that we are children of God, that we are Christians, is shown by the works which the Spirit produces in us. If you love the Lord you are obeying him. This is a demonstration that you're united to Christ and that God by his spirit lives in you. And that's what John says here in the last part of verse 24. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. The Holy Spirit is the witness to us of our ingrafting into Christ, our union with him in our communion. The Spirit is the one who, who gives us that life in Christ, who produces the good works in us. The Spirit is the one who bears witness to those who are united to Christ, that they are children of the living God. He is called the Spirit of adoption. And Paul says he's the one by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who gives us the boldness to go to the throne of grace, the throne of our Heavenly Father. The Holy Spirit is, is the one who reminds us, look to Christ. He's your Savior, your Savior, not just a general Savior, but your Savior. And he's the one who teaches us what we are to believe about God that he has shown us in his word. It's through the spirit, John says, that we know that God abides in us and we in God through the work 
of the Spirit. So what are we to do with all of this? Do you have a guilty conscience sometimes? Yes. What are you to do? Look to Christ. Flee to Christ. Trust in Christ. Do you want confidence to boldly approach the Lord in prayer? Go to Christ. Flee to Christ. Look to Christ. Do you want to obey the Lord who has saved you and who loves you? Go to Christ. Flee to Christ. Look to Christ. That is what John reminds us of through this whole passage. Christ is the answer. He is the one who by the shedding of his blood washes us free of a sinful and guilty conscience. And so in him, we may have confidence and boldness to go before the Lord God, the great judge and king, as not just a judge and king, but as a loving father who welcomes all of his children into his presence because of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so then, dear saints, beloved of God, look to Christ. Trust in Christ in all of life so that you might have a clean conscience before God and have great boldness to go before him in prayer as we should do now. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do admit to you that we so often have uh, the guilt of our sin weighing upon us. We know that we break your law often in thought, word, and deed. We do come to you with confidence, Lord, boldly, because of our Lord Jesus Christ and only because of him. We thank you that we have so great a salvation in Christ, that we are cleansed from our sin and we are given the righteousness of Christ so that we might be your people and not just servants, but children of the Most High God. We thank you for this, Lord, and we ask that you would continue to show us the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give us greater faith to continue to to look to him and to follow after him in, in all of life so that we might remember when we sin. I am a great sinner, but I have an even greater Savior, and he has made satisfaction for all my sin. We pray that you would do this for your glory and the good of your people, O God, and we ask in Christ's name, amen.